And welcome back to City on the Edge. It's just me, Ty Bannerman, today. But I do have, well, I think it's a real treat. Um, I managed to track down and interview one of my childhood heroes, the storyteller Joe Hayes. Uh, Joe Hayes tells Southwestern stories, um, mainly from New Mexico. Uh, A lot of them are Spanish in origin or... Tales adapted from those collected from the Pueblos in the 1920s, and he does tell a couple of those stories on the show today. So I think this is going to be a real treat and one that's uh, honestly pretty good for listening to with a kid. So without further ado, here's Joe Hayes. Most fond of those stories. You know, uh, you, you, you want me to just haul off and yeah, let's hear, let's right just now? hear one off the off the top of the head. Okay, off the top of my head, I'll tell okay. you a story that happened in a, in a little village up in the mountains here in New Mexico a long time ago. There was a girl who lived in that little village. She must have been very attractive, <laughs> because in that little town, three young men all fell in love with the same girl. She was not interested in any of those three young men. They just about drove her crazy, always trying to get her attention. Almost every evening, one of them would show up at her house and stand outside and sing love songs. Sometimes two of them would come on the same evening. Sometimes all three would show up on the same evening. They would sound like a bunch of alley cats out there. Each one would try to be the loudest and the most heartbroken with his song. And in the daytime, they would come racing past her house on fast horses, trying to impress her. Every time she walked through the village, one of those young men would come up to her and try to hand her a flower or start a conversation with her. No matter how much she told them that she wasn't interested or came right out and said she didn't even like them, they would not leave her alone. So she decided she was going to teach them a lesson. She went to the carpenter in the little village. She said to the carpenter, ¿Cuánto me vas a cobrar para ser un ataúd? How much will you charge me, she said, to build a coffin? He told her his normal price, and she said she would pay him twice that much if he would build a coffin without telling anybody about it and then take it out to the old empty house at the edge of the village. Everyone knew that old house. Everybody said, Es una casa donde penan. Hay un anima que ande penando en esa casa. Es una casa embrujada. That's a haunted house, they would say. There's a soul suffering in that old house. Well, everything was agreed upon. And then the next time the girl went walking through the town, of course, one of the young men came up to her to start a conversation. 
And she said, you know that old empty house out there at the edge of the village? If you will go to that house at 11.30 tonight, you'll see an empty coffin in the house and a candle burning at the head of the coffin. And if you are brave enough to climb into that coffin and lie back and cover your face like a dead man and lie there all night long, I might like to get to know you a little bit better. He was delighted. Finally, she was paying a little bit of attention to him. He said he wasn't afraid to do it at all. And then it wasn't very long before the second young man approached her. And she said to him, You know that old house at the edge of the village? If you would go to that house at 15 minutes before midnight tonight, You'll see a coffin in the house, a dead man lying in the coffin. And if you're brave enough to pull a chair over beside that coffin and sit there and pray over that dead body all night long, I might like to get to know you a little bit better. He said he was going to do it too. And then, of course, it wasn't long before the third young man spoke to her, and she told him, You know the old empty house out at the edge of the village? If you go to that house at midnight tonight, you will see a coffin in the house and a dead man lying in the coffin. And there's another ghost that sits and prays beside that body all night long. And if you're brave enough to dress yourself up like the devil with cow horns tied on your head and your face all covered with charcoal and you dance around those two ghosts all night long, I would enjoy the pleasure of your company. He said he was going to do it too. So that night, a little bit before 11.30, the girl went to the house. The carpenter had kept his word. There was an empty coffin in the house. She lit a candle and put it at the head of the coffin, and she went into a back room to hide. At 11.30, she saw the first young man arrive. She saw him trembling as he climbed into the coffin, and then he lay back and covered his face with a cloth. He folded his arms over his chest, and he lay there perfectly still. Fifteen minutes later, the second young man arrived. He found a chair and dragged it over beside the coffin. He sat down and he started to pray. She could hear his voice quivering as he was praying. She could hear the rosary beads rattling in his fingers. And then, just at midnight, the one who was praying happened to glance at the door. He said, Ay, Dios mío, es el diablo. Oh, my Lord, he said, it's the devil. And when the young man lying in the coffin heard him say that, he came jumping up out of the coffin. And he said to the devil, you're not going to get me yet. He jumped out a window and went running away down the road. But when the young man who was dressed like the devil saw what he thought was a dead man come jumping up out of a coffin and then go diving out a window. He was so scared that he spun around and he ran down the road right behind him. 
the two of them ran down the road with the dead man saying, No! No! And the devil right behind him at every step he took. But the one who was praying didn't stop praying. He didn't get out of the chair. He sat there praying louder and louder. The girl was impressed with him. She came out of her hiding place. She said, Tu si eres valiente. You really are brave, she said. Tu no corriste. You didn't run away. The young man turned his white face toward her. He said, Como quieres que corra? How do you expect me to run? He said, Se me engancharon los pantalones en un clavo. My pants got stuck on a nail, he said. But just then the nail popped out of the chair. He fell to the floor face first, and then he jumped up and he ran down the road after the other two. And the next day, the girl told all her friends about what had happened. And of course, her friends told their families. It wasn't long before everybody in the village knew about it. Uh, those three young men were so embarrassed. They never bothered her again. And they say that in that little village, even today, if somebody does something that seems like it took a lot of courage and they start to brag about how brave they are, people will say, oh, maybe you're brave or maybe your pants just got caught on the nail. Wonderful. A story about respecting women's boundaries. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. Um, so I am joined by Joe Hayes today. He is one of America's premier storytellers, a nationally recognized teller of tales from the Hispanic, Native American, and Anglo cultures. His bilingual Spanish-English tellings have earned him a distinctive place among America's storytellers. He began sharing his stories in print in 1982. His books have received the Arizona Young Readers Award, two Land of Enchantment Children's Book Awards, four Ippy Awards, a Southwest Book Award, and an Aesop Accolade Award. His book, The Day It Snowed Tortillas, was chosen by the editors of the Bloomsbury Review as one of their 15 favorite children's books published in the last 15 years. His books have been on the Texas Blue Bonnet Award Master List twice, in 2007, his book Ghost Fever won the Texas Blue Bonnet Award, the first bilingual book to win the award, and uh, most recently, Kirkus Reviews named Don't Say a Word Mama, one of the best works of 2013. Uh, welcome to uh, City on the Edge, Joe. Oh, thank you. It's good to be here. <laughs> so fantastic to, uh, to speak to you because I, as I mentioned before, I uh, grew up listening to your stories um, on cassette tapes. A lot of coyote stories were played in yeah. my household and on road trips. And then also seeing you live at the Wheelwright Museum. Uh, in those days, you performed outside of a teepee. Yeah, they don't put up the teepee anymore, but I still tell stories there You're in the still summer. still there, yeah, in the summer. Um, I'd love to, uh, let's start with your origin stories. Uh, story. How did you first get interested in, in the oral tradition? Well, you got to go way back to answer that question. Uh, I think it all started because my dad used to tell stories to us when I was a kid. M my grandparents, whom I never met, were both born in Ireland, both of his parents. And so he, he identified very much with being Irish. And so, especially for St. Patrick's Day, he would always make up a story to tell us when we were kids. 
And it was very special because we, no, none of our friends had a treat like that. So that, that got my interest started, I think, in oral expression. And my dad also loved to declaim and he liked to read poetry to us. And uh, that, that, that was a big influence on me. And then, of course, uh, I, I'm a child of the 50s and 60s. And in the late 50s, the, the folk music just exploded all over the country, and I was very much interested in folk music at that time. And, and that got me interested in traditional culture in general. And uh, then I, I had children of my own, and so I started thinking, I should tell stories to my kids. I liked it so much when my dad would tell a story. So I began learning stories so I could tell stories to my own children. That's really, really what got me started was telling stories to my kids. And you're not originally from the Southwest. Uh, where, where do you come from? Well, not originally. I was originally, I was born in Pennsylvania. But then uh, I moved out to a small town in Arizona when I was a kid, a little town called Benson, Arizona. And uh, that's where I finished growing up, was in, in Arizona, and then I went to the University of Arizona. and was around Tucson until the mid-'70s, and that's when I came to New Mexico. And you started telling your stories in New Mexico. Basically, I did, yeah. I started telling stories publicly after I came to New Mexico. And how did you go from being a person who tells stories to your children uh, to being a professional storyteller? Well, I was divorced and my kids went to California with their mom. So I, I started making cassette tapes of stories to send to the kids in the mail and learning stories so that when they spent the summer with me and they spent the Christmas vacation with me and spring break with me, I'd have stories in my mind that I could share with the kids to send them home with those memories. So that, that was a big influence. And when I first came to New Mexico, I taught English at the high school in Los Alamos. Oh, okay. And there were, at that time, there was an elementary school straight across the street from the high school. So when I had my preparation period at the high school, I go across to the elementary school and tell stories to the elementary school kids over there. And then, you know, my own English students and also the, the elementary kids would go home and talk about it to their parents. And then I started getting phone calls from people saying, well, I work with the Boy Scouts. We're going camping. I hear you tell stories. Could you come and tell the guys a story? Things like that started happening. So that, that started putting the idea in my mind that maybe I could go farther with this if, if I put a little effort into it. So I decided to Give it a try and see if I could just tell stories all the time. And what sort of stories were you telling at this point? Were they stories that you made up or were they well, folktales? Uh, actually, when I began, some of them would be stories that I made up, but I had already started researching traditional mm -hmm. stories. And I already had an interest in Southwestern stories. And then when I came to New Mexico, that's when I discovered what a rich trove of stories there were. There was in New Mexico that... Uh, and how many stories had been collected back in the day when, when the oral tradition was still a lot stronger so I could go to those collections and really get an original story and then start working on that original idea to make a story that would work with contemporary kids. So these are stories that were originally field collected back in, uh, like, when would they have been collected originally? Well, well the, the, the big time for collecting Hispanic stories was really the 1920s and 1930s. And yeah, at the, at the end of the 30s, the WPA Writers Project collected a lot of stuff too. That would be at the end of the 30s and the very beginning of the 40s. 
And uh, of course, Native American lore was, was collected by anthropologists starting in the 19th century. So there, there was a lot of that material available. But I was especially interested in, in the Spanish language stories that were collected. And that you probably know what folklorists and anthropologists do is write down exactly what the informant mm -hmm. is saying. You, you know, did they really transcribe the story that's being told to them? So that also helped me to get a real sense of the style that people had when they would tell the stories. And, and you know, they're just little touches of humor and things that would be in the stories that you might not be aware of if you hadn't been exposed to the, to the real traditional stories. Now, what, what drew you to the, uh, to the New Mexico Hispanic stories as opposed to, you know, fairy tales from collected in, a, in Germany or something like that? Well, you know, uh, it's one of those things that you can't really explain, but you know, I, I lived in a little town in Arizona close to the border. I had a lot of Mexican-American friends when I was a kid. I took an interest in Spanish. As a kid, I kept trying to pick it up. I, I, I sometimes tell the kids, I, I can remember one experience. We were at the swimming pool one time, and my friend fell down and banged his knee on the cement, and he said, I! And I thought, well, that is interesting. In my family, people say, ouch, or they say, mm -hmm. ow. But he says, I, when he gets hurt, you know, well, I got to, I got to learn more about that. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it really, it, it was around me. And, and for some reason I took an interest in it. And when I went to the university of Arizona, foolishly, I took German. Oh, okay. So I didn't study Spanish formally in, in class mm -hmm. because I started off as a biology major. And back in the, in the 60s, they would tell you, if you study science, you have to take German. That's the language of science. They used, <laughs> they used to think back at that time. Mm -hmm. so, so I didn't study it. But, but here I was rooming with the same guys I went through high school with. And so, you know, we were always tossing Spanish around. You know, so it, it was just an interest that naturally developed for me. And then everything I would do seemed to always put me in situations where I'd pick up a little more Spanish, mm -hmm. a little more Spanish. I, I taught it when I got when I finished at the university. I taught English at a high school in Tucson, in the southern part of the city, where there were a lot of Spanish-speaking kids in, in the high school. And then I decided I want to try something really different. I did mineral exploration work for about four or five years, and they sent me to Mexico for a year. They sent me to Spain for six months. So again, you know, I, I kind kept of reinforced yeah, it. Yeah, huh? kept reinforcing my interest in Spanish and in Sp and Spanish culture. Mm -hmm. So when I, when I ran into these collections here in New Mexico, I just—it's like my mind was ready to absorb them. Now, were these were these published works, or were they uh, like archives at libraries, or, or what's what sort of form were they in at this point? Well, uh, you know, some are in memoirs of the uh, of the American Folklore Society, mm -hmm. and, and you know, early on, and and some were government publications, and early on, those things were not copyrighted. Mm -hmm. And then there, there was a, a huge compendious collection of, of stories from New Mexico, Cuentos Españoles de Colorado y de, de Nuevo México by Juan Rael, which was published, he was a, a professor at Stanford, and, mm -hmm. or I, I think actually he was a graduate student at that time still at Stanford, and, and it was published by, by Stanford University Press. And then in the 70s, it was reissued by the, by the Museum of New Mexico Press. 
and uh, that's got about 500 different variants mm-hmm. of local stories in it. So that that was a, a real important source for me. And did you find that the uh, the kids in New Mexico responded well to those stories when you would retell them? Oh yeah. I, well, you know, it's interesting. Everywhere I go, the kids respond pretty well okay. to the stories. You know, it's not. It, 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 it's not as culturally specific as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's fourth graders, for example, all tend to like the same kind of story. Okay. It has to do more with it, with their intellectual development mm-hmm. and just where they are, you know, in, in the development of their personalities. That they, they're, mm-hmm. You can pretty much predict this is a story that's going to go over well with fourth graders, regardless of what their cultural background is. Okay. So it was really your preference that, uh, that kind of made you think that... Um, that you wanted to focus on the uh, the Hispanic stories well, from you New know, Mexico. I, yeah, and I, I, I never really made a decision about that. That's people will say, "Why did you do? Why did you decide to focus on these stories?" I didn't decide to focus on them. They were around. I had them at mm-hmm. my fingertips, so I started telling them, and then they, they were well received, and that encouraged me. So I kept on, you know, pursuing it further. Okay. Um, so when you're uh, taking these stories from the uh, the form of, of a field collected story and you are turning them into a story that you tell out loud uh, what, what, how, how does that process work um, do you tend to stick with what was written down or does it become do you make it your own oh yeah very much so um, my style of, of, of uh, telling stories my way of, of, of structuring a story tends to be fairly simple i don't elaborate a lot to to my mind for a told story momentum is really important you got to keep it moving forward and people will say to me well you 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 really take a story right down to its essence but actually when you look at field collected stories they're they're much 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 more condensed than that even you know the story that i told you although that story i did actually hear from a man in penasco Mm -hmm. But a story like that uh, might be, you know, three or four minutes long. And then, you know, I, I, I add more details and dialogue and things like that to the story. So I, I do expand it some, somewhat, but mm-hmm. I still try to keep it uh, simple, simple enough that, it, that it's constantly moving forward, that, the, the, that the, you, don't, you don't ever go off on any kind of a sidetrack. It keeps, keeps the momentum going right down the trail. So you were telling these stories in, uh, to your school classes, and you started to, uh, started to realize that they were kind of a hit, and maybe you could um, move forward and, and do this kind of more professionally. Like, how did that... How did that work? Um, Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that it did did work out. Actually, uh, this would be 1979, and that's when I first thought I was going to try to launch out and tell stories. But then uh, I got a little bit worried about that thing. What am I going to do if it doesn't work? So the fall of 1979, I, I had resigned at the high school in Los Alamos. I took a job teaching at the Indian school in Santa Fe, it just moved from Albuquerque to Santa Fe that fall. So uh, I, I took a job teaching, I thought I, I, I better have a job, but then I, then I got mad at myself for, for not following through, so I, so I told them, okay, I'm, I'm only gonna stay here for a semester, and then I'm gonna try to launch out as a storyteller. And as it turned out, it was perfect timing, because 
if I had tried in the fall of 79, at the beginning of the school year, you know, I probably wouldn't have had very much demand mm-hmm. because it takes a while for the year to get rolling. You know, mm-hmm. nothing really happens even now until the end of October and early November. But as it was, I waited until the second semester, and then that's when, when schools were sort of looking for things to break up the monotony <laughs> of the school year. And amazingly, I was busy, you know, you know, almost working full-time almost immediately, and at that time, only in New Mexico. Only in New Mexico and, and, and in schools at, mostly at that at, point. At schools primarily. I, I did public libraries and all, you know, other kind of events, uh, uh, sometimes even private parties and things like that. When you start off, you do just anything that comes along, but mainly schools. And of course, I had no idea how timely it was, but at that time, the federal program still had a, a lot of funding and, and they were often looking for things to spend their mm-hmm. money on. Wow. <laughs> you know, so, uh, uh, I went to the Department of Education in Santa Fe and a very kind person gave me a list of all the federal programs coordinators for the different districts in the state and I sent a letter out to everybody, and, and it caught on quite quickly. And at that time, I think the, many of the, of the administrators were of a generation where they would think, storytelling, oh, they used to tell stories when I was young. These kids need to hear that. They're not getting that anymore. So they, they started inviting me to come and visit the schools because the, the, there was that fascination. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now the, the whole... Uh, question of storytelling has really complicated and so many different things are being called storytelling when Mm. somebody says storytelling you don't want they're talking about now right but uh, at that time it seemed to to click although uh it was also a very novel idea at that time there used to be a very active artists and schools program in new mexico Uh, they sent all kinds of uh, visual artists and writers and poets and you know musicians out to the schools all over the state and I went to apply to they wouldn't even let me allow what let me apply for the program really? they said well you don't really fit into any category <laughs> you yet. don't paint <laughs> you're, not, you're not a writer you're and you're you're not a playwright you're not a not an actor uh, they wouldn't even let me apply mm-hmm. so it was kind of outside the but, box but yeah it was outside the box and luckily I was out of school and a man who was working with as a poet with the program was there working also and he heard me he said why don't you get in this program and I said they won't let me apply <laughs> and so he went down to the arts commission and said you got to get this guy Joe Hayes in the program so then when I went back there again they said oh yeah we heard about you uh, okay you kind of smooth things over huh? yeah then I was able to to get into it at what point did you realize that you could actually do this you know Full-time. Uh, well, you know, it, uh, uh, I, from, from the, the day that I announced that here I am, a storyteller, until uh, here we are sitting across the table from each other, I'd never have had to have a day job or anything like that. That was it. it was I've been able to do it. Amazingly. Right out of the gate. Yeah. Yeah. First hop out of the chute, you know. When did you start uh, performing at the Wheelwright Museum? I started at the Wheelwright in the summer of 1982. Okay, and you've been there I've been ever there since, for every summer 37 since. Thirty-seven years. Yeah. Okay, because like an institution now. Yeah. At what point do you become an institution? Well, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, you know how everything kind of goes up and down. I think maybe it reached a peak some some years ago, mm-hmm. but people still do turn out. And one of the the most satisfying things when I do stories at the wheel right now is is uh, you know, 
middle-aged parents will come and say, I used to come here mm. when I was a kid and I brought my kids. Yeah. It's multi-generational now. Yeah. Now, many of the stories that you, uh, you tell and write are, are like the one that you told at the beginning, bilingual. Um, a lot of the stories are bilingual, yeah. Is that, uh, do you feel like that's a, an important element to preserve when you're speaking to, you know, maybe audiences that aren't bilingual? That aren't bilingual. Yeah, I, I think it is, yeah. Well, in part, it's sort of a reminder to people, now this story, you might have heard this whole story in Spanish. So I'll, I'll keep some Spanish in the story to, to remind you that, that that's that's the origin of the story. And then a lot of times, uh, the, the, the f most entertaining, the funnest part of the story is what I'll put into Spanish. And I, I like that, especially with a multilingual group, mm -hmm. because, or, or I should say bilingual, I guess, because the Spanish speakers will get it first, and then, then I translate it, and then the others kind of play catch up. So, and, and in the schools especially, that's, that's a positive experience for the kids who speak Spanish, mm -hmm. to have that little bit of a, a leg up on the other kids, because so often they're, they're playing catch up instead. Mm -hmm. Now, as you mentioned, you are uh, descended from, from Irish people. That's right, yeah. Um, many of the stories that you tell are, are of uh, either Native American or Hispanic origin. I mean, did, do you ever get criticized uh, as like taking a story from a tradition that maybe isn't, you weren't born into? Well, n not to my face. I don't know <laughs> <laughs> what anybody thinks behind my back. But right. You, you never know. But... but uh, uh, you know, I, I never represent myself as as being a part of the culture or a mm -hmm. representative of the culture. I, I just this is a story that's derived from that culture mm -hmm. that that I find really fascinating, and I want to share it with you. So I, I don't claim it as that it belongs to me, you know, or that that I through the story somehow I'm participating in that culture. It's just a story that I really enjoy. And uh, many, 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 many times people express appreciation for that. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a question I had is, is do you ever get people who are, who say, oh, my grandmother told me that story oh, when many I was times. little? Yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah. Um, more so a couple decades ago, mm -hmm. I run into that a lot more. The, the tradition has weakened so much. Mm -hmm. I don't... I don't run into that so much anymore, but you know, not very long ago, what, a couple of months ago, I told some stories to a group of employees at the Forest Service here in Albuquerque, and, and there were some women there who said, oh, this reminds me of the stories I used to hear when I was a kid, and my, my, my uncle used to tell stories like that, you know, my grandpa was always telling stories, so, you know, the, the, very often I get that kind of response. Now, um my, uh, as a child, my favorite uh, type of stories that you would tell, and now that we listen to you in the, uh, in the car on, on my uh, iPod, you know, we, listen, we, we put it through the speakers, and my daughter listens, and my son listens. Oh. Uh, they love the coyote stories. Yeah. I love the coyote stories. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the character of coyote, and, you know, is, is that something that has a, an enduring appeal? Well, it certainly has an enduring appeal for people in the Southwest, I think. And maybe now that the range of the coyote is, is spreading all across the country, maybe maybe there's a, a similar reaction in other parts of the country. But uh, 
I, I think anyone in the Southwest has sort of a special feeling toward coyotes or something about them. Just when you see them, you know, you can see that, that sort of sly way they have about them and that worldly sort of way mm -hmm. about them that, that you, 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 you sense whether you're putting in the context of a story or not. And I think that's, that's a, a big part of the appeal of the stories about Coyote. And then I think, you know, people often are able to put themselves in Coyote's place, you know. And, and a lot of times, you know, Coyote is trying to get the best of some other animal mm -hmm. or take advantage of some situation and ends up making a fool of himself. It's interesting. He's usually sort of, his intentions are villainous a lot of the time. Like a lot of times they are, else. yeah. Um, yeah. but it's always from his perspective. I think that's fascinating. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so when you, you started writing down stories, of course, when, when did you start writing them? I started writing them just about the same time as I started at the wheelwright. Okay. The first book was the day it snowed tortillas. And, and that, that came out that same summer that I started in the summer of 82. And was there a difference in the way that you would write them down versus tell them orally? Well, there were some differences, although, and I like to talk to the kids about this, my, my approach really was that I would sit, and, and I tell the kids, you won't believe this, but I had a typewriter that didn't even have a computer. It was so long ago. <laughs> wow. <laughs> have any of you kids ever seen a typewriter? I, I, I tried one once. <laughs> we have one at home in the closet. Yeah. So... But, but, but what I did was, was really start from the told story and type it out at the way I would tell it. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you have to do some revision. And you can do things with your voice and with gestures when you're telling a story that you, can't, that you, you have to compensate for when you write the story. But basically, I, I take the same approach to writing the story as to telling the story. So th there's not a not a real big difference. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll, I'll write stories without ever having told them, and then if I start telling them, I realize I have to change things. You really have to have somebody listening to you to show you really how you should tell the story. You what you gauge it based on reactions of the audience. Exactly. Okay. That's another thing I'm always saying to people that if you. If you want to be a storyteller, learn a couple of stories and then start telling them and pay attention to the people because the only people who can teach you how to tell a story is the people who are listening to it. Don't go taking workshops or read books about how to tell a story. Just watch the people you're talking to and they'll teach you how you should tell that story. So uh, some of the stories that, you've, uh, that you tell and that you've written down are, are your own stories and, and tall tales, uh, sometimes about your boyhood adventures with a, yeah, with a pet rattlesnake. Mm -hmm. uh, what made you decide to kind of make yourself a character in, uh, in the stories you tell? Well, you know, that, that's really a traditional approach to tall tales also. The, you, a lot of times people think of tall tales in terms of the literary tall tales, like the Paul Bunyan stories and the Pickles Bill stories. The, mm -hmm. Those are not traditional stories. Those really? were literary stories that were written and kind of borrowing from the, the tall tale style oh, of humor. Okay. But the most traditional way of telling a tall tale was to just pretend it happened to you. It, 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 the f part of the fun of it was to see you know, how far you could get before oh. people start laughing and realize, oh, this is a tall tale. So I, I started telling tall tales in that 
tradition, with that approach of, of, of saying that this is something that happened to me and then letting people realize that, no, this, this is impossible. So even though they're original stories, they're within the tradition of the tall tale. Mm-hmm. Are any of them actually based on things that did happen to you? Well, they're somewhat based on things that happened to me. What, what I, I tell the kids is you can think of these stories as a what-if story. Mm-hmm. You think of something that's true about yourself, uh, some some interest that you have or some silly habit that you have or that, that you some, some quirk that you have, and you say, what if it happened this way? The, the, the most popular of the tall tales is the one about the rattlesnake chewing the bubble gum. Mm-hmm. And so I said, yeah, it's, it's true, I used to love to chew bubble gum. I used to get in trouble for chewing gum in school. And sometimes I'd leave gum in my pocket and my mom would get mad because I'd make a stain on my shirt. Uh, and I did like to walk around out in the desert when I was a kid. So I start off thinking of these things that are true and then I say, what if? And <laughs> then I start going off with wild answers to the what if question and that's how you end up with the tall tale. And that becomes the tall tale. Very cool. Um, so I've been to your events a few times in the last uh, five years or so, driving up to Santa Fe to the to the museum. Um, they're always packed, as far as I can tell. Uh, I usually get a pretty good turnout. Yeah, it's really <laughs> nice to see. So, you know, we live in the age of, of cell phones and TVs and video games and a million other distractions. Um, what what do you think is, is bringing people to come and see a, a live storyteller uh, outside of a, a museum in, in New Mexico? Well, part of it is I think that that all humans have an appetite for a told story. Mm-hmm. And you think of it, it's, it, it, it's been an important part of, of human culture for you know, a million and a half years or however long it's been that we've had consciousness. And, and then in the last mm, 200 years at the most, the majority of people became literate. Well, probably less than that, last 100 years, a lot of people became literate and started reading stories and then and then electronics came in, and then we have the digital age, but we, but we still have so many things that we have inherited from our earlier existence as a species. And one of them was sort of the, the, the pleasure of listening to somebody tell a story. And in, uh, traditionally, the stories were an important part of survival as well, because so much cultural and uh, even practical information was passed along by telling the stories. And I think, as with anything else that's needed for survival, there's a, there's a pleasure factor associated mm-hmm. with so that we keep doing it. So that I think that's part of the appeal. And in the, uh, what is it, three decades that you've been doing this? Almost four. Yeah, almost uh, four. Have, you, have, have your audiences, have you noticed that they've changed at all in their reactions or, you know, how they interact with you? Or, or is it no, pretty much the I same? don't think I really have. Uh, and when, when I first started out, I was surprised at how the kids especially would respond to being told a story. I started out thinking, well, my own children enjoy it because I'm their dad. But, <laughs> but you know, I, I can't expect too much of a reaction from other kids. And I was, I was really amazed at how they responded to the stories. And, and that hasn't really changed. You know, of course, there'll be there'll be uh, an occasional person who just doesn't relate to that. You know, but mm-hmm. but well, I, 
I suppose it's not, I'm being generous with myself in a way because, of course, the majority of people who come to hear me tell stories are people who are interested in listening right. to a story. So there might be other people. See, for, you know. <laughs> they just stay home. Although people, yeah. people will tell me, you know, women will say, oh, uh, my husband said, oh, I don't want to go listen to a storyteller. And, 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 and I, I made him come anyway. Oh, he said, that was really great. I really liked that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have to tell people to turn off their cell phones? Well, at, at the museum in the summer, I, I, that hasn't really been an issue. I, I keep expecting that to happen. <laughs> Every once in a while, I'll see a cell phone and think, what are they doing? And I realize they're, they're videoing <laughs> <laughs> with a cell phone. But but not to the extent you would expect. Um, it happens much more with the teachers in the schools. Oh, really? The teachers? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, yeah. many, many teachers are, are much more connected than their cell, to their cell phones yeah. than they are to their students. You know, they're just constantly oh. texting. But Ouch. It, it, and that varies from school to school. Some schools sort of have policies about that, mm -hmm. and other schools don't. Okay. Well, um would it be possible to hear another story before we wrap up, or you got to run? <laughs> I don't have to run. Okay. You know what I should probably tell? Should be I should tell the day it's no tortilla. Uh, a classic, that, right? That's a classic. Yeah, that, I've been telling that for so long. You know, I'll, I'll meet people that don't quite place me, and then they'll say, "Oh, I, you're the tortilla guy, aren't you?" <laughs> the tortilla guy. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And the other interesting thing is sometimes people will say, I didn't recognize you, but I recognize that voice. Yeah, because they're like me and my kids, we listen in the car. And is that right? We know yeah. the voice, yeah. yeah. I have no idea what that's all about, but people, <laughs> people will say that. So I will tell the story of the day it's known to us. And this is a story about a man who chopped firewood for a living. He was a leñador. He was a firewood cutter. And that man was good at his work. He could chop down a tree in no time at all. He would split it up to make firewood. He'd take it to the village and sell it. He could make a pretty good living. But this man had never been to school. He didn't know how to read or how to write. And the poor man wasn't very bright either. He was always doing foolish things that would get him into trouble. But he was lucky. His wife was a very clever woman. She always knew how to get him out of the trouble his foolishness would get him into. Well, one day he was way off in the mountains chopping firewood, and at the end of the day he started down the trail to go back home. And he saw three leather bags by the side of the trail. He went over and opened up the first bag, it was full of gold. He looked into the second bag. It was full of gold, too. And so was the third one. He carried those bags of gold home and showed them to his wife. And his wife said, Don't tell anybody you found that gold. Some robbers must have hidden it out there in the mountains. And if they find out we have it, they might even kill us to get it back again. But then she thought, oh no, my husband can never keep a secret. So she came up with a plan. She told him, before you do anything else, I need you to go to the village and get me some flour. I need a lot of flour. Bring me a hundred pounds of flour. 
the man went down to the village grumbling to himself. He said, oh, I've been working in the mountains all day long. Now my wife wants me to carry home a hundred pounds of flour. But he bought a big sack of flour and lugged it home to his wife. And his wife said, oh, thank you. You have been working awfully hard. Why don't you go inside and lie down and rest for a while? He liked that idea. He went into the house and he lay down on the bed and he fell asleep. As soon as he fell asleep, his wife took the flour and she started making tortillas. She made one batch after another. She made tortillas until the stack went clear up to the ceiling. She turned the whole hundred pounds of flour into tortillas. And then she carried them outside and she threw them all over the ground. The man was so tired, he slept all through the evening. He slept all night long. He didn't wake up until the next morning. And when he looked out the window, he saw that outside the ground was covered with tortillas. He said to his wife, what's this? And his wife said, oh my goodness, it must have snowed tortillas last night. He said, what, snowed tortillas? I've never heard of such a thing. She said, well, you're not very well educated. If you've never heard about it snowing tortillas, you better go to school and learn something. She made him get all dressed up in his Sunday suit. She packed him a lunch and she made him go to school. The poor man didn't know how to read or write, so they put him in the first grade. He was a big, strong man who could work all day long with an ax but he had to squeeze into one of the little chairs that the first graders sat in. The teacher would ask questions and the children would raise their hands. He didn't know the answers to any of the questions. He got more and more embarrassed. Finally, he couldn't take it anymore. He jumped up and went stomping out of the school. He went back home and picked up his axe. And he told his wife, I've had enough of school. I'm going to go and chop some firewood. She said, oh, that's fine. Go right ahead and do your work. And then sure enough, just about a week later, the robbers came to the house one day. They said to the woman, Where's that gold your husband found? She acted innocent. She said, gold? I don't know anything about any gold. They said, come on, your husband's been telling everybody in the village he found three bags of gold. They belong to us. You better give them back. She said, what? Did my husband say that? Oh, that man says the strangest things. I don't know anything about your gold. They said, well, we'll find out. We'll wait right here until he gets home. The robbers stayed around the house all day long. They were sharpening their knives and cleaning their pistols. In the evening, they looked out and they saw the man coming home. 
They ran out to him and they grabbed him. They said, where's that gold you found? He scratched his head. He said, oh, that gold. My wife hid it someplace. Wife, what did you do with that gold? She said, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know anything about any gold. He said to her, of course you do. Don't you remember? It was just the day before it snowed tortillas. I came home with three bags of gold. And don't you remember, in the morning, you made me go to school. The robbers looked at one another. They said, did he say it snowed tortillas? And his wife makes him go to school? Ese pobrecito está loco. That poor man is out of his mind. And they went away thinking that everything he said was just a lot of nonsense. So the woodcutter and his clever wife had three bags of gold. And they never did find out who the gold really belonged to. So they just had to keep it all for themselves. Another smart lady coming through. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, do you have any uh, like events, storytelling events coming up, or are you kind of down for the season? Pretty much down for the season. I have one more half-day visit to an elementary school, and, and okay. I'm done until next year. Until next year, and catch you at the Wheelwright Museum. I hope so. Well, thank yeah. you so much for coming down to Albuquerque thank and talking with me today. It's been fun. I've had a wonderful conversation with you. So, See Joe Hayes at the, uh, at the Wheelwright Museum, usually about August, or... Well, these years, it's the four weekends between Folk Art Market and Indian Market. Okay. So it's the end of July and the beginning of August. Mm -hmm. And you can also find uh, your audiobooks on iTunes and so and forth. And I've got almost every story I know on, on YouTube, too. Wonderful. Okay. Yeah. What, is, what is your YouTube channel? It's jo Joe Hayes Storyteller. Okay. We'll, yeah. we'll look that up. So thank you so much once again. And thank you once again for tuning in to City on the Edge, the podcast where we tell Albuquerque's stories. I'd like to just take a moment here to thank our patrons. We've got Natasha Chisdes, uh, Lando Enchantment, Isaac Clark, Amy Nevitt, Amy Gabe, Rachel Langer, Jen Panhorst, Jean-Yves Bart, uh, Julie Bannerman, Kelsey Tietchen, uh, Jesse Crawford, Christopher Holden, Jim Robillard, uh, let's see. Oh, uh, Ben Tucker, uh, Nicole Finch. Just want to uh, thank you guys so much. And of course, these uh, patrons have access to our ongoing uh, special content on the Patreon page, which right now includes a nearly daily update of Albuquerque today, 110 years ago. Lots of cool stories there. And of course, they have the uh, the good feeling of, of having helped us continue to what we to do what we do for the last four uh, years or so and free entry into the event that we just did and, and future events so you know if this is something that you're thinking about doing go ahead and take that plunge go to City on the Edge uh, our account is uh, patreon.com City on the Edge and for as little as one dollar a month you can uh, you can really help us out and we'll, uh, we'll talk to you next time <laughs>